Well, greetings to you all from Grace Fellowship Church, Don Mills. It is my wife and I's pleasure to be here with you today. I still remember a year ago, around this time, you guys hosted us when we needed a place to meet during the pandemic. So a year later, I didn't expect to be back here preaching for you, but it is a joy to do so. So as we prepare ourselves to hear from God's word, I invite you to join me in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we long to hear what you have to say to your people. It is a joy for us to sit under your word. And Father, we pray that you would be with us now. Pray that you would give me boldness that comes from the authority of your word to preach your word clearly. And I pray for every heart that's here to receive your word. And we trust that through your spirit, you will speak to your people. Please bless the preaching of your word now. In Jesus' name, amen. So quick show of hands, who here needs encouragement today? Oh, I see a few hands. Oh, there we go. Maybe it's just early in the morning. Yeah, um, there's a lot of things happening in the world, um, or even in this country, that can be a source of discouragement. In an ever-changing culture where sin is glorified, God's word is undermined, and those who want to live godly get a target on their backs, it can be easy to grow weak and weary in our faith. Not to mention how exhausting it has been over these last couple of years trying to navigate this pandemic. Or maybe for you this morning, it's a little closer to home. Maybe you're facing issues at work or worse at home, in your relationships. See, we can all use some encouragement. And this morning, I want to encourage us all in the midst of it all to stand firm today and to live for the day. Again, that's to stand firm today and to live for the day. This encouragement sets before us ways that we can be strengthened in our faith as well as a weighty motive to do so. So we are in Hebrews 10 this morning. Now, I recognize that coming into the book at this point is like watching one of the Marvel Avengers movies. You're in the cinema, you're watching, I don't know, explosions, buildings coming down, people flying around. You have no idea what's going on or where the story is leading. So let me try and help us bring, let me try and bring us up to speed. See, If I could summarize for you the message of the book of Hebrews up to this point, it would probably be something like this. Jesus is over here. Everything else, down there. That's it. The author has belabored the point that Jesus is better. See, in chapters 1 and 2, he shows us that Jesus is the God-man who is better than angels, crowned with glory and honor. In chapter 3, he tells us that Jesus is better than Moses. In chapter 4, Jesus gives access to a better rest than Joshua. In chapters 5 to 10, Jesus is the better high priest, offering the better sacrifice in the better temple and institutes a better covenant. So by the time you get to our text for today, the author wants it to have stuck in your mind, Jesus is better. 
There are three main points that we will consider this morning as we make our resolution to stand firm today and to live for the day. The first is our confidence. The second is our charge, where we'll spend most of our time this morning. And the third is our conviction. So first, let's think of our confidence. See, before getting at what he's calling his audience to do, the author reminds them of why they are able to obey. He does this by summarizing his message up to this point. He tells us that there is a confidence to be had. Look with me at verses 19 to 21. He says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God. See, to appreciate this confidence, you have to take a step back. The author says we can enter holy places by a new and living way past a curtain and there's a high priest. Like, what's going on here? If you're not familiar with the Old Testament, you might not get what the author is saying here. So let me try and fill in the blanks here. See, when God created all things, he did it with a purpose. I've heard the purpose summarized this way. It's that God's people would dwell in God's place and have full access to God's presence. Again, it's that God's people would dwell in God's place and have access to God's presence. That's the story of the Bible. That's our story, church. This was on display back in the Garden of Eden. Let's think about it. So God created Adam and Eve the people, and he put them in the garden he had made for them, the place where he communed with them, the presence, and there was no need for a mediator. But rather than being satisfied with what their gracious and loving God had given them, they longed for more. And in rebellion, they disobeyed God and sin entered the world. Sin now separates God and man, and the story of redemption is God's plan to restore things back to how they were meant to be. But things were not the same anymore. God's people no longer had full access to him like they did in the garden. See, sinful human beings are unable to draw near to a righteous and holy God and need someone to stand in between them. In fact, In the Old Testament, the tabernacle and the temple illustrated that the closer you got to God, the more restricted the access became. In their design, they had curtains in place to mark how increasingly holy the space was. And the most holy place where God's very presence dwelt was the most sacred. Only the high priest was allowed into the most holy place. And even then, only once a year, he was the mediator between God and man. But he had to cleanse himself first because he had sins of his own, and then bring a sacrifice for the cleansing of the people. Over the last two years, we have groaned under the weight of COVID precautions. 
Now imagine if you dial that up to 100 and the certainty of death if you fail to follow any of those instructions and you begin to have an idea of how serious this was. Anyone who approached God's presence carelessly died. That's how set apart and holy he is. But in our text for today, the author is saying that we have the confidence to walk right into these holy places, past the curtains that separate us into the very presence of God. Now, I don't know about you, but I know how my life has gone this past week. I know the things that I said or didn't say, or the things I did or didn't do, or the thoughts in my heart that I was glad no one else could hear. Can we really say that we have lived in such a way that would give us boldness to come before God today? I doubt it. So where can this confidence come from? By hoping that our good deeds would outweigh our bad deeds? Or by being better neighbors? Or by giving to the church more? Tell me how many sacrifices are enough to bring to God to pay the price for our sins? We can't. But there's good news. See, Jesus, the better high priest who had no sin of his own, followed the pattern of high priests by entering into the most holy place, the very presence of God, and offered the blood of the sacrifice to atone for the sins of the people. But his sacrifice was different. See, he offered himself. Listen to what the author says as he writes in chapter 4, I mean in verse 4 of this chapter. He says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The sacrifices in the Old Testament were a temporary fix. We heard about Good Friday and Easter coming up. See, Easter is two weeks away, and we'll be reflecting on the only sacrifice that is able to cleanse our sins. Easter isn't about bunnies and chocolate eggs. It's about the very Son of God who came into the world he made, offered himself by dying on the cross on behalf of sinners, and was raised on the third day. See, he did this because there was no other way. There is nothing we can offer to pay for our sins, but it's okay because Jesus paid it all. See, brothers and sisters, our first point about our confidence is simply a reminder of the gospel. Those who trust in Jesus have been given full access to God's presence because the separation caused by our sins have been dealt with. Now, I'm aware some of you might be here today and you are not a follower of Jesus. Then please, hear this. I don't know what kinds of sacrifices and offerings you have been bringing to God, hoping that it will give you access to Him. But let me tell you in love, those things will not save you. Nothing but the blood of Jesus is able to cleanse your sins and your guilt. He tells us this in verse 14 that we heard earlier. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. I urge you, turn to Jesus, 
He has done a great thing for us, and it is our confidence in his accomplished work that will enable us to stand firm today and to live for the day. So with that in mind, the the author of Hebrews then wants us to know what our charge is. In verses 22 to 24, he writes, Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us draw near. See, after reminding us of why we can stand firm, he goes on to tell us how. He gives a threefold exhortation in the text signaled by the words, let us, let us, let us. So let us look at each of them. The first one is let us draw near. It is a natural progression from the previous three verses. Since we have confidence to enter the holy places, to draw near to God, then let us do just that. Let us draw near to God. See, if Jesus has made a way, what else stands in your way? What has been keeping you from drawing near to God? Is it your sin? Then know that you can have full assurance that you are forgiven if you confess your sins, repent of them, and trust wholly in Jesus. See, in 1 John 1, 9, we are told that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Or tell me, is it your guilt and shame? Then no, according to Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. See, as Christians, the greatest obstacle for us drawing near to God, our sins have been removed. The author of Hebrews uses language of ceremonial cleansing from the Old Testament Old Testament to enforce this point. He says, we have been sprinkled clean and washed with pure water. This doesn't mean that Christians are sinless, but it does mean that we have been made right in God's eyes. We have been made the people of God and have been given access to his presence. We have a true heart in full assurance of faith. I think this truth is captured well in the hymn that says, when, t- when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free, for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. How do we stand firm today? Firstly, we do so by drawing near to God. Know that Jesus has given you full access to the Father through himself. Your sin and shame have been removed and you're invited into his very presence. The most obvious means we have of drawing near to God are prayer and his word where we meet with him. So let me ask you, How is your prayer life? How is your time in the Bible going? Do you do your daily devotions because you are devoted to your reading plan? Or because you know you need to be devoted to Him? 
See, we shouldn't spend time in prayer or in the Bible out of routine, but from a heart that recognizes how broken we were, how much we have been loved, and the incalculable wealth of joy and blessing God has in store for his people. So secondly, let's think about it. We can stand firm today by holding fast our confession. We see that in verse 23, he says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. This second exhortation is calling for believers to cling tightly to the gospel that they have confessed to believe in. After encountering the truth of the gospel... After tasting and seeing the goodness of the Lord, we are exhorted now to turn, we are exhorted not to turn away from this truth. This is a solemn exhortation that is echoed throughout the New Testament. The validity of your confession is proved by your endurance in it. For example, in Hebrews 3.14, the writer says, We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And in Matthew 24, 12 to 13, Jesus himself, speaking about the end days, says, And because, of lawless, because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But listen, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. I remember talking with someone about work. And he was telling me about how there was a campaign at his workplace that was reinforcing our society's current gender agenda. In the name of freedom and inclusion, the very core of our humanity is being undermined on different levels. And as our culture increasingly denies the truth of God's word, will you hold fast your confession without wavering, even if it costs you? Will Jesus Christ be worth more to you than your job or status or relationship or your very lives? That's a sobering question, isn't it? How worthy is Jesus in your eyes? But that's a question we all will have to answer. You see, Holding fast calls for more than I said a prayer when I was five years old or I attend church every Sunday. Those things are good and are indeed a step in the right direction, but we will only stand firm if we actively, daily rehearse the truth of our faith and hold fast to it. Sometimes this is simply reminding yourself of truth when your circumstances tempt you to doubt. Society tells me A, but scripture tells me B. I trust scripture more than society, so I will listen to what scripture says. Or the trials of my life make me think that God is like this, but the testimony of God's word tells me that he's actually like this. I would trust what God says more than I would trust what my circumstances show. See, holding fast our confession helps us to evaluate our circumstances in light of God's character, not to evaluate God's character in light of our circumstances. 
The author calls it the confession of our hope. See, the biblical view of hope is not wishful thinking or sanctified optimism, but the certainty of a future reality. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Romans 8.25. He says, if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with, conf- with patience. But how can we be certain? Well, the author tells us in this verse, he says, he who promised is faithful. Friends, we have a hope that is as certain as God is unchanging. The reason any of us will be able to hold fast to our confession is because God, in turn, is holding fast to us. So that brings us to the third charge. Let us consider how to stir up one another. Now, I must confess, I'm introverted by nature. I don't like attention. And as much as I love people, I find being social draining. So you might be wondering what I'm doing up here. It's God's grace. Uh, Oftentimes, when we're with people, I let my wife carry the conversations because I get socialed out. But listen, this final charge is not optional, regardless of our social inclinations. See, the first two exhortations we have looked at although addressed to believers corporately, can be applied individually. But when we get to this exhortation, the corporate nature becomes even more evident. It says one another. It's inherently relational. This charge requires believers to meet together. You won't find mutual edification streaming sermons online or reading good books. Those things are good, but we will fail at this charge if we do not take time to be in each other's lives. Now, it's been a tricky time, no doubt. I think there were about over a hundred Sundays that different measures had to be taken in Sunday services, and some of that included live stream only services. We haven't been able to meet with each other like we want to, and as and be as involved in each other's lives like we would like. We have had to function in less than ideal circumstances, for sure. However, this charge to be in real fellowship with other believers remains the same. So how can we stand firm today? By staying connected to our brothers and sisters who encourage us in our faith. See, Christian fellowship ought to pull us up and point us toward Jesus. Think of a wood-burning fireplace. To keep the fire from going out, you have to stoke it, right? You unsettle it to keep the embers going and add more wood to keep it burning. See, when we're in each other's lives, we can stir up one another's faith like wood in a fireplace, rebuking one another when we're drifting or disobedient to God's word, coming alongside each other when we're discouraged, showing evidences of grace in one another when we are tempted to doubt that God is at work in us. There are many ways that we might stir up one another, but the underlying motive is the same. We strive to make one another better followers of Jesus. Our confidence in what Jesus has done 
ought to make us to draw near to God. Yes. And it ought to cause us to hold fast our confession without wavering. Amen. And it also ought to cause us to encourage others to do the same. See, our faith in Jesus proves dead without the love and good works that are evidenced by such a faith. When we encourage one another to love and good works, we are not calling one another to work for our salvation. Verses 19 to 23 already made it clear that we cannot earn our salvation. Only the finished work of Jesus saves us. What we're calling one another to do is to work out our salvation, to bear fruit from our salvation. This is Discipleship 101. Deliberately doing someone's spiritual good that they might become more like Jesus. Now, if you're a keen observer as you've been reading through the text, you will have noticed that the exhortation is to consider how to stir up one another. The point here is that we are to be intentional in what we do. And I can think of at least two ways we can do this. See, we can either approach someone specifically thinking of how you can encourage them. Uh, This is like the direct, I'm praying for you, I'm praying with you, let's come together, meet up, study, uh, that kind of encouraging, uh, encouraging their faith. But you can also be intentional indirectly when you're mindful that how you live, your affections, attitudes, and actions can be instructive to others. And so you intentionally live a life that disciples those who consider how you live. This is the imitate me as I imitate Christ kind of thinking. By holding on to these approaches, we begin to see that we don't have to literally interact with everyone in our church in order to stir them up to love and good works. We interact with those that we can, and those that we don't get to disciple directly, we do so indirectly by how we choose to live. But either of these approaches still requires us to be in each other's lives. I hope you have people in your lives that model these approaches. You know them. Those who their speech is so seasoned with the gospel that is refreshing to your soul just to speak to them. Or those that you watch from a distance so faithful in how they adorn the gospel that you find yourself thinking, I want some of that. I want to represent Christ like he does. Or I want to love and care for people like she does. See, this charge is for us. It calls us to be models that stir others up. So let me ask, are we living lives worth imitating? Or do our lives contradict our confession and cast doubt as to whether we even believe the things that we say? What would obedience to this charge look like at Hope Markham? Do you place priority in being with your brothers and sisters as they gather for worship and fellowship, seeking not just to be blessed, but to be a blessing? See, teaching about the church, the Bible often uses metaphors like a body and living stones that are built into a spiritual house. 
These pictures remind us that we are not saved to be alone, but saved to be part of a community of believers. One brick doesn't make a house. And a lone liver doesn't constitute a body. It is only when in its proper place that it fulfills its purpose. It is only when each part is functioning properly that the whole is built up. So do you see the danger then? Not only would you be depriving the gathering of the gifts and blessings God has laid up in you for the blessing of your brothers and sisters, but you yourself, if you forsake meeting up with believers, deprive yourself of the stirring up of your faith, which in this increasingly dark world wouldn't take long to grow cold. Thomas Schreiner puts it this way, He says, those who abandon the fellowship of the Christian church by failing to attend are in danger of the final judgment. Perseverance is not merely a private matter. It is also reflected in whether believers meet corporately with one another. Refusing and failing to meet regularly with other believers corporately calls into question whether someone truly belongs to God. It is not simply a nice thing for Christians to do. It is necessary preparation for the day of judgment. Can I just say that this isn't to guilt trip anyone. A lot of churches have recently had to consider the legitimacy of withholding gatherings in person, not out of fear, but genuine concern for one another. However, we must examine ourselves to make sure that we aren't simply making excuses. After all, did you know that you can be an encouragement to others just by showing up for stuff? But make no mistake, this exhortation is bigger than you have to go to church on Sunday. Friends, we cannot stand firm today without one another. Paul Tripp would say it this way. He would say, your walk with God is a community project. We will all encounter various circumstances But we are still called to live intentionally in a way that stirs up our brothers and sisters because we ought to be ever mindful of their day. Which leads us to our final point this morning, our conviction. Like you guys heard earlier, my wife and I are expecting our first child any day or any moment, maybe not right now. Um, But when it happens, it happens. There's no more time to prepare. You just have to face, face it when it happens. Similarly, as we've been thinking about this, the author has told us of our confidence, Jesus. He has exhorted us with a threefold charge. And here at the end of our passage, he sets before us something he expects to motivate us to take the charge seriously. He says in verse 25, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. All of this, our standing firm today, should be done in light of our conviction of a coming day. So what is the day? It's the day of judgment. 
The coming day when we shall all stand or fall before God, depending on where we have placed our confidence. Jesus or everything else. Remember when I mentioned the story of the Bible. God's people dwelling in God's place and having full access to God's presence. Well, the day marks the culmination of the story. All of history is leading up to this very point. So will you be deemed part of God's people, allowed into God's place, and get to enjoy God's presence forever? Or will you be found lacking, not sprinkled, not cleansed, not accounted for, and be eternally separated from God? Make no mistake, this is what is at stake here, eternal life or eternal damnation. Do you need a weightier motivation? Hebrews is full of these sober reminders of what is at stake here. For example, in the verses immediately after our passage, we read in verses 26 to 27, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. The author here is ever mindful of this coming day, and he wants us to be too. It's fast approaching. You don't know when the last day of your life will be. One thing you can know for sure is that it grows closer with each passing day, each passing breath, each passing moment. So are you living in preparation to meet God? Are you living helping others to prepare to meet God? You should That's what this text is calling us to do, to consider how to stir up one another to love and good works because the day is coming where we will each have to give an account and there will be no rewinds, replays, or redos on that day. I urge you once again, friends, if you've not put your trust in Jesus, do so right now. I'd encourage you to do it right now. You might not get another chance. This isn't fear-mongering, it's a statement of truth. See, your life could end as soon as you walk through those doors. My life could end even before the end of this sermon. I, I don't know. But what I do know is that I have been cleansed by Jesus and my confidence is in Him and I can go before God with full assurance. Can you say those things? Turn to God in prayer. Confess your sins and hold God to the hope promised in the gospel. Remember, he who promised is faithful. As for you Christians who have trusted in Jesus, be encouraged. I know life can suck sometimes, but be encouraged. You have reason for confidence. See, let us resolve to stand firm and to encourage others to do the same, not just for today, but for today onwards. Let us remember that Jesus is the only reason why we can stand firm in the first place. And let us remember that the day is coming where we will all be judged and we ought to live for and in light of that day. 
I end with this word of prophecy from Jesus himself in Revelation 22. Behold, I am coming soon. Bring in my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we have heard a sobering word that is as encouraging as it is frightening. Oh, Father, we pray for those among us who have heard this word and do not know you, have not trusted in Jesus. Father, we have sung about your mercy and how your kindness leads to repentance. We pray in your great mercy you would convict hearts of sin in this moment. You would open eyes to see their need for a Savior, to know that they need someone to stand in between them and you, and to know that you have made a way through your Son, Jesus, and what he has accomplished for us on the cross. Father, would you save souls in this moment, we pray. And for those of us who do know you, we pray you would encourage us not just to live for you and to, be, and to hold fast our confession, but also to live lives in a way that encourages others to do so. We know Jesus is coming back. You have said so and your word never fails. Help us to live in light of this truth, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.